one of the proudest moments in my broadcast career was uh, shutting down the Union Pacific Railway that ran from uh, you know the East Coast to the West because they were afraid there was an alien invasion uh, in out. southeastern Idaho. Get out. True story. True story. That is amazing. So they literally, you guys recreated it, and then you it obviously aired, and then they bought into it a whole second oh, time. <laughs> and, and I do have, exactly, I do have recordings of us answering the phones. Oh, my And gosh. it was the Union Pacific said, well, listen, I've just shut down all railway <laughs> going east and west. Town president Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> My next guest was the co-host of the first equally billed male and female morning show in the country. Together with Kim Amidon, they went on to win multiple major awards, such as the Radio Billboard Award, the Radio and Records Personality of the Year Award, and not to mention the countless awards the station received while they were the morning team, including the NAB's Marconi Award for Station of the Year. Their greatest honor was receiving a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for their 20th anniversary in front of Disney's El Capitan Theater. Please welcome Mark Wallengren. Wow. And don't forget, it's like real estate, it's uh, placement, placement, placement. <laughs> or neighborhood, what, what is it? Yeah. Um, I, I think you're my first guest with a star on the Walk of Fame. Wow. Which, I mean, that's an incredible honor. You know, it, it really was. And uh, the fault, let's see, ours was February 3rd uh, that we got it. And then the following January 1st, we were featured on the CBS Morning News. Uh, they were covering the Rose Parade Live. I think it was CBS. And uh, it was an entire story on who is Mark and Kim. <laughs> <laughs> and why do they deserve they were going, star? There's all these names and they put us up. There's Michael Jackson and there's Steve McQueen. And, there's, and then it's all of a sudden it's like, who are these people, right? Well... We're going to get into your career at Coast, uh, which was incredible and so many things I want to talk about. But before we get there, I just want to thank you personally, A, for being here. But you may or may not know this. You've been so incredibly instrumental in my career. Oh, and Chachi. We've known each other for 20, 20 Long time. Yeah, 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. And when I first moved here, you could not have been any more generous with your time. You were so kind to me. I was this kind of young um you know, I, I guess uh, ambitious, but probably poking my head into places I, I, I shouldn't have been. And you just were always so kind, and uh, you taught me a tremendous amount. Well, and, I, and I'm going to challenge you and have you. Te- what did I teach you? And we'll see how if I, I recall, because you know, <laughs> at this point, um, you know, I kind of learned that from my parents, but professionally, I really learned that from Gary Owens. I am. A very lucky man in the sense of when I hit radio in Los Angeles, it was a a huge transition time. You had these legends from the 1950s that were on the radio uh, that had made national names for themselves and were still around. And Gary Owens was one of the nicest people. And he would always say to me, which is an old showbiz phrase, but... You know, uh, be nice on the way up the ladder because you're going to see those same people on your way back down. And, um, and it, you know, it was never hard for me to be nice to a guy like you or, or pretty much anybody else. It's the easiest thing in the world is to, you know, come at a person with a smile. You know what I mean? Yet so few people honestly do it. 
And you really do live by those words. And I, I love what Gary Owen taught you. And I think you pass that on to me. And I try to do the same, but I'm not as good at it as you. Well, I don't know about That's, that. But I will say the glass is always half full. It's never half empty. empty. <laughs> Tell me about growing up uh, in a Mormon pioneer family. You know, um, I have really taken a lifetime to kind of wrap my head around my family lineage. And um, a part of it has to do with, you know, the Ancestry.com and the, you know, the, the, the what is it, D23, not the <laughs> Disney, whatever it is. The 23 and 23 me. and yeah. me. I knew it was 23 and what? You know, the, the, I'm confusing my Disney yeah. and my, you know, my genetics. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I come from a, uh, on my mother's uh, a side of the family, uh, Mormon pioneers literally moving in the 1840s from England to the United States. Uh, and uh, becoming Mormons in England and coming here to go meet this and ended up leading the trail for Brigham Young to go into Salt Lake City. And then as uh, uh, my grandparents uh, uh, grew up and then ended off into Denver, um, my grandfather's dad was a high school music teacher, very, very creative. My grandfather was a, a wonderful little artist. All the boys in that family could sing four or five-part harmony. They could, they could draw, illustrate, they could paint. And my grandfather got a job as a, a sign painter on, on billboards. Instead of, you know, slapping up paper, they literally hand-painted those signs as you made your way across the country on these uh, primitive roads back in those days, ended up in Chicago getting a job with Montgomery Wards, which was a huge retail outlet like Sears sure. and Roebuck, and ended up in their advertising department and then becoming so successful in that advertising department that he quit, started his own art house advertising and not only had Montgomery Wards as a client, but had Sears and Roebuck as a client. My grandfather was one of the very first to incorporate photographs in printed advertising. Wow. And um, uh, so he was there in Chicago. That's where my mom was born. She ended up at Northwestern University getting a, uh, a degree in journalism with an interest in poetry and just writing. Then my grandfather becoming very successful, retired to La Jolla, where he began painting and, and selling artwork up and down the West Coast, and then got a uh, an idea to go back home to Utah. And he, along with his brothers, who by then, very artistic people, were working for Walt Disney as animators, they decided that they were going to open up a, a little bed and breakfast, 26 room with this natural hot springs, a golf course. And they, you know, that, that's where I was born. But having no idea that I had all this artistic background, it wasn't until later that I, you know, kind of got a clue. So were your parents, were they supportive of, I mean, obviously they grew, you grew up around arts and artistic people and entrepreneurial people. Were your parents supportive of the arts and you being entrepreneurial? You know, my, my dad was, uh, uh, I think my mom was a little Mormon rebel. She was a debutante <laughs> in Chicago, but she liked she liked the edgy boys, I think. So after World War II, 
when my grandfather retired and um, you know moved to La Jolla, he built a beach house there, and, and my mom went to college, continued her education at USC. Uh, my dad was out of the Navy of World War II working for Ocean, uh, uh, Scripps Oceanographic Institute down in San Diego. Sure. He had a um, he had a biology degree, which is really a prestigious institute. Um, yes, yeah. very much so. And I, I think that um, he was more interested in being really close to Tijuana, where all the bars were. <laughs> um, right? And, I mean, he was really he was a hell raiser. I mean, my dad was my dad. I think my 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 sense of humor. I think sometimes I get it from my mom, but maybe I know I, my dad is just he's unbelievable. Um, so your your but, mom did bear, marry so, a bad a bad boy. So yeah. my mom met my dad. And my grandparents, I guess, were absolutely, couldn't believe it. But once they got married and then my grandfather bought this resort, it was like my dad picked up and went, well, I'll go with you. (laughs) Uh, And he then started running the kitchen. And so uh, he got to know the restaurant business. And through that, he created 24-hour truck stops in and around Idaho, Montana, uh, Colorado. He had about eight or nine of them. Amazing. My mom started uh, as a television writer because she wanted to be a writer. She was doing it based out of Utah. And uh, so uh, eventually, uh, we did move to California because my mom started writing a lot of television shows for Disney, correct? Uh, it was for Disney. It started off for a show that was narrated by Ronald Reagan called death Valley days with 20 mule team <laughs> borax. I don't know what, <laughs> but um, I just remember that uh, uh, I, I remember, you know, we're, we're moving to California. That's a huge change. It I mean, was, were you excited about it or? Well, yeah, it, I was very excited. I mean, yeah. California was the home of Disneyland. Sure. Right? So when we came down, and, and the fact that I wouldn't have winters anymore, right? There wasn't going to be snow right. in the winter, <laughs> and there were palm trees. I'll never forget my, my dad uh, saying, what is, what's the first thing you're going to do when you get to California? He says, I said, I'm going to climb a palm tree. <laughs> and we got off on the 101 freeway at Sunset Boulevard and drove all the way down uh, into Beverly Hills. And there was a kind of a swaying palm tree, and Dad stopped the car and said, it was over by Beverly Hills Hotel. Said, go, there you go, go climb it. <laughs> That's great. Right? And have you ever tried to climb a palm tree? I can't say I have. It is horrible. <laughs> it is painful. You, you come down and you've got, you know, rug, you know br- bruises all down your stomach. I wasn't wearing shirts, shoes, or I wanted to be one of those Hawaiian kids climbing the palm tree. So it's not nearly as glamorous. It was as it, not, and as I, you would imagine, absolutely not. Uh-huh. So you move here. It's you, your brother. I've got uh, a total of uh, uh, with my mom and dad who were divorced when I was fourteen. Um, they had five kids together. Okay. So uh, I was the third child. I was right smack in the middle. One daughter, four boys. I feel sorry for my sister, <laughs> but yeah. Um, and raised in Santa Ana. Could have been Pacific Palisades, but my parents, when they moved here in 1964, looked at two homes, one in Pacific Palisades, one in Santa Ana. The difference in the house payment was $5 a week, and they couldn't swing that five to live in Pacific Palisades. That house today is probably worth $12 million. Santa Ana, maybe an outrageous $800,000. Well, the Santa Ana upbringing, it worked out all right. It's great, great, and I love that area. 
obviously you grew up around uh, uh, very creative people. It sounds like it was something that your parents, I think, you know, certainly nurtured in you and your whole family lineage nurtured in you. What got you interested in radio specifically and enrolling in the KISS Broadcasting Workshop? You know, um, so if you're not familiar, uh, KISS FM, big radio station in Los Angeles, back in the 70s and 80s, where FM was just starting to take off, AM still was kind of the dominant thing. KISS ratings were terrible, and they really needed to find a way to make money. And I think it was uh, uh, Uncle Earl Trout, as I recall, (laughs) that through KISS with some of the on-air personalities in Los Angeles said, hey, we can create a school, and the lure will be if you go to our broadcasting workshop we will then put you for training on the air all night on KISS AM. Wow. Right? I had no idea this existed. You got a 20-minute shift on KISS AM. So, you know, to, to backpedal, to first be interested in radio, uh, you know, on February, uh, uh, what was it? February 6th? What, what was it? February 8th, whatever the day was, the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan Show. Okay. I saw that and I said, that's what I want to do for a living. I want to be Ringo. I want to play drums. That's what I want to do. <laughs> so I really worked very, very hard at doing that. And by the time I got to be 17, 18 years old, uh, the entire music scene had changed and we were beginning to see really accomplished masters of instruments reigning over, right? And I was into this type of music, but I was a Ringo. And I thought, there's no place for me. I'll never be able to, you know, make a living at this. We had a friend that was the the Osmonds. Remember my Mormon connection? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we had a friend that that produced the Osmond Brothers records. Okay. And he was in in Mormons, if you're familiar with this, uh, he was our family home teacher. Once a week, we would have a member of the church, usually a spy, that would come over and check up on the family, make sure you paid your tithing. They'd heard about your mom. Oh, boy, and my dad. (laughs) And, you know, and it was, Dell, when are we going to get you into church? Anyway, um, he said to me, and it was, I mean, I was 17, and I was a late puberty. I mean, my voice was like this until I was, seriously. And he said, you know, boy, your voice is just, it, it really sounds good. Have you ever thought about radio? And I looked at him and I said, no, but I, I love music, right? I, I'm not going to be a professional drummer. And, you know, I, I was hanging around with people that to this day are multi-Grammy winners and very, very famous musicians. So you were hanging out with a high, high level. Well, of- they were 12 then. but right. uh, <laughs> So they hadn't quite. But I could see at tw- when, you know, being 14, I could see yeah. how great they were at 12. I didn't have a chance. So after I graduated high school, you know, I enrolled in college. And, uh, you know, with a, wanting to get into radio, and I basically was told that it would take me two years before I would be able to get a shot on the college radio station. And then the first class that I went to was this old man, and I, I swear to God, he was 100. He was teaching <laughs> university. And he was 100. It was Marconi himself. It was Marconi himself, <laughs> uh, the guy that created radio. Uh, and they were showing you how to plug an XLR uh, Jack into the wall. Okay. And I said, I'm out. I am 
Oh. So I found this um, uh, voiceover class where they just kind of teach you how to read commercials and talk about radio, but it was led by a guy named uh, Don Burns. Do you know the name? Absolutely. All right, Don Burns, uh, the No Stress Express on the wave (laughs) when we finally kicked John Sebastian out of the market because he was the one that started that radio station and they started advertising No Jocks. Remember that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I like John Sebastian. He's created a great new format, the wow factor that uh, is kind of popping in Phoenix. But the point is, is that, you know, he's, uh, well, it was the loneliest Christmas party ever when you went to the Wave Christmas right. <laughs> party back in those days. Um, but uh, so when they did go live, Don Burns, who had a, an unbelievable voice, he was the one that really cemented my belief that I could do something with radio. And so when that program ended. I didn't feel I had enough training. I still, you know, had dropped out of college. And then I I found the KISS Broadcasting Workshop and then did, after I finished, go on and do these all-night shifts at KISS AM. And Larry McKay, who's still an old radio guy who's around, I'm friends with him on Facebook, he would say, when I would come in, he'd go, hey, listen, I'm going to go ahead. I know you're only supposed to get 20 minutes, but nobody else is scheduled. Do you want to do two hours? And so literally... In 1976, I was working all nights on L.A. at KISS AM doing radio. What an amazing opportunity. I had no idea that program even existed. I'm surprised there isn't one now. I don't, and I, yeah. I, maybe it's just because radio has changed so much that uh, it's not necessarily a super growing industry for talent. Sure, so but fantastic way to cut your teeth yeah. and to, to learn. And was there, I mean, at that point, were you getting callers? Was there an audience for KISS FMAM? You know, I don't know. I wouldn't have, because they had an engineer in those days. Oh. I couldn't even see a phone light ringing. Would I they said, trust me to put it? On a, on a phone or anything. Um, do you have any original air checks? So, and you know, I don't know if I do. I really don't know. I've got, I, you know, I, I've left coast and I have 42 years of radio tapes and boxes in my attic that I need to digitize yeah. and go through and figure out. I, I went through that process a few years ago. I don't have nearly the library that you have because I wasn't on the air nearly as long uh, or in nearly well, as Well, plus you have people to do it to, for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got something for you to do. So you graduate from uh, the Kiss Broadcasting yep. School, and you get your first job back in uh, Preston, Idaho, at KACH. Preston, Idaho. It was a town of three thousand people and twenty five thousand head of steer. <laughs> Seriously, um, a dairy country. And what's interesting about it is that I was too embarrassed to ever tell anyone where I started. It was that small of a town. I left, you know, 10 million here in Los Angeles and went to a town of 3,000 thinking that's the way I'm supposed to do it, which I think you were. That's what we were always taught, right? Um, uh, And then years later, after I came back, and I can't remember what year it was. It might have been, it was in the 90s by this time, I think, maybe early 2000s, but... um, my daughter says, oh, we got to go see this movie. And so, oh, yeah, I love going with my kids. And so we're going to go see him. Walked into it. I, we were about 10 minutes late into the movie. It already started. And I thought, oh, God, what's this? What's this? this is a documentary. Um, and it was the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Such a great movie. And it was filmed in Preston, Idaho. That's It's based on a family in, in Preston, Preston, Idaho. And I kid you not, if you go back and you, you know, get that on Netflix or wherever it's streaming right now and you watch that movie, that's exactly what that town was exactly 
exactly like that's the way the people are. It, <laughs> it was the most bizarre experience of my life. And I stayed there for 10 months and finally got out and went to Pocatello, Idaho, where uh, I had the uh, uh, proud distinction to be part of a group that ended up not once but twice recreating and airing War of the Worlds by Orson Welles. We were the wow. first that I knew of in the country post Orson Welles to literally recreate that. And one of the proudest moments in my broadcast career was uh, shutting down the Union Pacific Railway that ran from uh, you know the East Coast to the West because they were afraid there was an alien invasion Get uh, in out. southeastern Idaho. Get out. True story. True story. That is amazing. So they literally, you guys recreated it, and then you it obviously aired, and then they bought into it a whole second oh, time. <laughs> and, and I do have, exactly, I do have recordings of us answering the phones. Oh, my And gosh. it was the Union Pacific said, well, listen, I've just shut down all railway <laughs> going east and west. And, and I mean, he wanted to he wanted to get some answers. Yet, you know, every 15 minutes, there was a disclaimer saying that this this is a recreation of the 1938 broadcast. Um, and we had we had a station cars. All the salespeople had these little yellow Chevettes. I don't know if you right. remember these. Yeah, sure. I mean, the little tiny. Yeah, they were the Chevrolet version of the Gremlin. Yeah. Just as ugly <laughs> as ugly as could be. We put they were all yellow. We put yellow lights on them so when the salespeople would go out on a call, they'd turn on the lights to go see the clients. Oh, look at this. Right? So, so they all had two-way cars. So the general manager or the sales manager could stay in touch with all the salespeople, see where they are, what they were doing. And we used that and recorded uh, all of us being in remote locations around that area in uh, Bannock County. I had no idea about oh, this story. Did you guys get in any sort of trouble? Um, no, we didn't. We didn't because we did air disclaimers, but we took calls and we had families that were hiding in closets. And I mean, it, it's, it's pretty intense. That is and I've got the audio. That is wild that 50, it goes to show you the power of radio. If you can paint that picture. Absolutely. As well as you obviously did 50 Absolutely. years after the fact or however many years it was yeah, when the original, yeah. you could basically and pull the same prank again. The other crazy story I remember from Pocatello was, uh, I got a ticket for running a stop sign. And this officer was an absolute, I mean, he, it, it was rude, cold, and he was so far behind me. And I argued with him. I said, you could not have possibly seen me run a stop sign because A, I didn't run it. B, you were not in a vicinity where you could tell whether I had stopped or not, right? right? So anyway, it, it got contentious between the two of us. I was working the all-night show. Okay. Midnight to six. Oof. So uh, I got back to the radio station and uh, dedicated my first song to the, the officer, <laughs> oh, called man. him out by badge number and oh. name, and played Eric Clapton's I Shot the Sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I got, almost got fired. It was my, uh, uh, yeah. It, I was, it burned back to the oh, police officer? Oh, boy, it, it just, it got back. Chief of police was, it was, it was a nasty next day. <laughs> yeah, I almost, almost got fired for that. Probably should have. Uh, so... 
there's your, you and kind of taking on some of your father's characteristics, being mm-hmm. a bit of the, uh, the the Mormon bad boy, if, well, if you and, will. Well, and he wasn't Mormon, though. That's why he, he oh. just could be, a, he could just call him the bad boy. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So talk to me about moving now to, you go from uh, Preston to Pocatello, smaller markets, but right. now you go to Boise. Boise's a you pretty know, decent sized market. Uh, it, it was a really, it was a really great experience. And today, Boise, Idaho has absolutely exploded. You've got more Californians there than Boiseans. I mean, it's I've, it's been a huge destination. I have a few friends that have actually yeah. recently moved there. Here it's beautiful. I've yeah. never been myself. It, it is uh, really beautiful. Unfortunately, um, in those areas, uh, Denver can happen, Salt Lake City. We take our, our pollution with us, and in the winter, they get terrible inversions okay. where it's like you have to go up to elevation to get above the, the inversion. But it was a beautiful city. Um, and I, I really did learn a lot. It was where I first started uh, really taking a, a, a commercial radio and reading seriously, because it's very important as you get into broadcasting. You've got to be, you've got to be a really good reader. And and I remember about this time I was sending letters back and forth between my parents. Remember letters? Sure, yeah, I do. Vaguely. I do. I, I remember <laughs> letters because. Uh, phone calls on AT and T were a dollar ninety nine right, a long minute. Distance. You know, it was it was very very that expensive. That was a big deal. So you wrote letters and you had to have stamps. But I remember writing my mom, and this would have been the late seventies, and just talking about how my goal on the radio was: I wanted people to tell me I sounded exactly the same way on the radio as off. That That's was the highest compliment anybody could ever give me: is that you sound the same. You know, was that like an authenticity? Um, I, I guess it would be, but there was just something, you know, because in Los Angeles in the <laughs> 1970s, you'd get these guys and they'd go, they'd go deep as they get into deep purple smoke on the water. Wonder what kind of smoke that was. Good stuff, yeah. Yes, I've uh, pretty much taken care of that here in the studio. You know, uh, or there were these guys. Yes, you know, we all all these radio people. You know, it was Gary Owens who perfected that with the ear and the stuff. So I just, and I don't know why, but I just felt like I just wanted to sound normal. I just wanted to be me on the radio. That's interesting. I think that was just based on your demonstrations there, which were fantastic, by the way. (laughs) I think that was really cutting edge at that point to be yourself and to not play a role. Cause I was even brought up in the, you know, a full decade later, still playing a character, if you will, as opposed to being authentic. Right. It's really very hard in radio to uh, be authentic because I don't sit at home looking in a mirror, talking to myself, True. right? Everything's in your head and you're, you're constantly a, a, a silent narration. Right. So when you're broadcasting and you're in a room by yourself, it, like how do I, how can I imagine that I'm having a, this weird two-way conversation, but it's really one way? Sure. And it, it took me years to try to. Did you have anyone right. coaching you at this point, or you're basically doing it on your own? No, no, it was just listening to myself. And you know, after I finally got used to, if you're uh, ever thinking about getting into radio, the first thing I would suggest is learn really good mic technique so that you know what you sound like with your headphones off. Then take the headphones off. As soon as the headphones come off, you will be a lot more natural if you don't feel like you sound like you 
It's are. a great tip. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it perfect sense. Yeah. It's a really good tip. So you're in Boise for a while. You uh, launch, are you actually in 84, you get your first morning show gig at K106. Now this, uh, this was a guy named Kip Guth who came out of Florida, but his previous stop had been, I think, Detroit. Uh, and uh, Kip has uh, since passed away, but he was the first major market guy that I was exposed to. And my understanding was his, his family had some money and Kip, who had been a successful program director in Miami and then in Detroit, wanted to get into the business and own his own radio station. I think he may have had some help from his dad, but he bought a brand new signal that had never been on in Boise. And it shocked me because Boise, Idaho, even then had 60, I think, signals. It was ridiculous for a small sure, town a like that. a lot of radio there. Well, a lot of radio, and you know what that means? It's a, it's a, what we call a dollar a holler. Right. Nobody could make any money because advertising was so inexpensive and nobody could afford to have a rating service come in, which, by the way, if you're not familiar with radio, is very expensive to do. Sure. So, you know, you just get out there and you just tell them how great you are. It hustle. Give me your money. But you had that uh, that trick with putting the siren uh, that's on top right. of the uh, Chevette. There you go. You'll I have mean, some of that. And honestly, I swear to God, just, you know, put up billboards, tell yeah. them, <laughs> just tell them you're great and, you know, they'll believe you. Yeah, that's right. Right? You know, just Despite you suck and you shouldn't even have a signal, turn it off. You're great. Um, but anyway, so Kip started the station and it was the first time that I had been programmed where there was really method and stuff that really made sense to me. So I got, I got that station off the ground. I did tell him that my plan was, because I had decided after being in Boise for four years that I wanted to leave. I wanted to go home. And I had tried to get into Seattle. I had tried Portland, just, you know, sending air checks. And I had sure. had a really good conversation and was very, very close to a, a, a position at a beautiful music station in Seattle. But I was interested in the, in the voiceover uh, end for commercials and, um, uh, and imaging. Uh, so anyway, that did, unfortunately didn't work out. But that's why I'd work at that station, because they would provide all of these. And they, the, the talent there would get paid Right. More so money is, than this their is salary. really kind of your I'm not that you didn't have an education, you absolutely had an education, but you now are kind of exposed to more major market radio. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And plus the travels coming back and forth to California and hearing Fraser Smith. I grew up with the Jim Lads, sure. right? And you know, those guys and then the AM radio guys. Uh but you know, Fraser Smith was oh my god, here we have a stand-up comic now doing mornings, uh which was kind of neat. So I was taking a lot of what I would hear. Once I kind of really oh, the light bulb went on. Uh, it did help, you know, when I would go back. So I would so, come here and literally just listen to radio and then go back. So the end goal was to come back to yes, L.A. Yes. But did you ever think, I mean, that's a huge comeback to market number two, that that may never have happened. You mean to you, go from market 178 yeah. to yeah, market number Well, so what had happened was, as I was doing all right in my career, my parents, as uh, my, well, my mom and now my stepdad, she uh, married for the second time, started becoming very, very successful television writer producers, very successful. And they had an in at CBS because that's where their shows were airing. Okay. And so they had a conversation with a friend of theirs uh, who did all of the 
next on CBS. Oh. Right? And so uh, he said, well, I would just, I'd love to meet your son. And I was happy to be down. We went out for dinner. And he goes, just, you know, send me a tape and let's see if we can use you. And uh, are you a member of SAG-AFTRA? And it was like, no. So I went and he says, well, you know, we can't hire you unless you're in the union. So I went back to Boise and I had a lot of agency work there, both as an actor in local commercials and voiceovers. And I actually talked one agency into throwing me union work and getting me uh, into the Portland union. So as soon as I had my membership in the union, that was the thing. As soon as I get that, I'm going back to LA. And all I wanted to do was say, next, on Falcon Crest, <laughs> right? That's all I wanted to do. You'd show up, you get 2,500 yeah. bucks. Sounds like a great gig. Previously on Falcon Crest, <laughs> right? Um, and so I came down here and I thought, uh, all right, well, I- I'll bring an air check and maybe uh, I can get a job in six weeks. But I'm also the kind where I want to make sure I do it right. So I spent... 1500 bucks, which is an insane amount of money then, for a complete press kit package. So I, I made a folder and custom cassette tapes and cassette tapes that were only 60 seconds long and pictures and just, I made it just as slick like, as slick like could be. a full-on be. media kit. Full-on media kit. And I sent it out, you know, as soon as I got here, a couple of weeks after I got back to L.A. And I started getting my rejection letters from uh, Kiss FM and from, you know, name the station, boom, da, boom, da, boom. All of a sudden, I get a call. So I've got the CBS stuff that I'm doing, and I'm starting to take acting classes, right? And I'm, I'm taking with a very prestigious television acting school with a, a really good character actor who's getting hired regular base teaching the class. And I get a phone call after I sent out all these cassette tapes from uh, Johnny Kay's office at Coast 103.5. And it was uh, Merrill Lynch. That was her real name, Merrill no. Lynch, just not like the, the firm. The, okay. Merrill called and said, uh, I am really so embarrassed to call you. There is no job opening here. I'm going to just tell you that right out. But Johnny K wants to meet the person that put this press kit together. <laughs> right? I can so see that happening by You way. know Johnny. I know Johnny, of course. He wanted to, who put this fantastic thing right, right together, right? And so I, you know, put on my cutest little 80s skinny tie. And, you know, you, you, you get dressed up for the thing. You yeah, want to sure. be fashionable, right? And I walk into the office and here I am, a, you know, 28-year-old. And there's Johnny, and, uh, you know, we're talking, and he goes, he just wanted to know everything about me. And so I kind of told him that I had got this job at the CBS and my parents, and boom, 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 boom. Uh, and then Johnny said, well, I don't really have a job. And he grabs my air checks, and he throws it in the machine. And he plays the air check. First time he's heard it. He <laughs> so- hasn't even listened to it, right? He wants to see the guy who made the thing. And he listens to the tape, and he goes, oh, Listen, I tell you what, why don't you come in Saturday night? We'll throw you in all night long. You just do four hours. I don't have a job, but, you know, you want to do it? I went, oh, my God, absolutely. So I did it for the four hours. And then he says, you want to do it again tonight? Yeah. And 
Amazing. There I am. I, and then June 28th of uh, 85, I became an official employee of, of, of Coast. After six weeks, I thought it would take me a year to find a part-time job. This is incredible. You know, and I've known you for 22 years, and I've never heard this story. So well, I don't who, like talking about me. I know. I, I, <laughs> I love this story. So you're now doing weekends, mm-hmm. and how does that eventually— And who's doing mornings at this time? M.G. Kelly. M- oh, my Machine gosh. Machine Gun Kelly. Kelly. Sure. Machine sure. Gunner totally. Kelly. <laughs> back to the authentic sounding. Okay. Machine Gun Kelly. Let me just step back to my going to the KISS broadcasting workshop. Okay. One of the assignments was to interview a current— radio person they want you know to get your interviewing skills down like i'm doing right now and you're passing (laughs) so so i called up uh i thought okay khj radio or i'm playing hall and oates you're a rich girl (laughs) right in in there you know so um and so i get an appointment to interview mark allen he was the midday host of khj mark would go on to be the voice of movie trailers for the Walt Disney Company. I mean, a legendary voiceover guy, Mark Allen, which was my radio name in Boise, Idaho. My Mark Wallengren, but A-L-L-E-N, it, right? Like, pull Mark Did you Allen. do that in homage? I did. No, I, I Just, you know, I was, I, no, because Mark Allen, I, well, maybe I did. I don't know. So, no, the guy in Boise said, we're not going to call you Wallengren. We're, you know, and he was the one who, Pulled Allen okay. out of it. So that's so funny. I've thought about that for years. Anyway, Mark Allen, the day that it came time for me to interview him, uh, came rushing out of the studio and said, I got to go. I can't do it. M.G. Kelly will do it. And it was it was when he got off at 3 o'clock. So this, I'm going back. This is when M.G. Kelly was trying to get an acting career going. And he had starred with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson in A Star is Born. And actually, he wasn't a star. He was a co-star, but okay. he was like it's the disc role. jockey. It was a yeah. big role that yeah. he had in that, in that movie. So he said, uh, Mark Allen said, Machine Gun, will you talk to this kid? So he dragged me into the legendary KHJ studio, said, you just sit back and watch and I'll do it. I start rolling tape and I've got Machine Gun Kelly talking up the Boogie Fever disco song that was, <laughs> you know, back in, in the day. Uh, and then I did this interview with him. And so here I am all these years later, I'm hired as a part-time guy at Coast working all night. And who's the morning guy? M.G. Kelly. Full circle. Full circle moment. So during that summer, we started giving away his and hers, Mercedes-Benz, uh, 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 BMWs. I mean, it you know, the $100,000. Yeah, the, I remember that. that I was mean, a just huge crazy, promotions. crazy promotions there. So what we would do on the his and her car giveaway, we'd give away 103 keys. You show up at a mall. If your key, you go up to a fishbowl, you pull the right. key, right? And it's it a classic, yep, yeah. classic radio promotion. Lots of drama. So there was a lot of time to fill on the stage keeping... Right. And so I would get up and, and uh, in after MG Kelly, and then everybody got their turn. And we had done this like every month for that summer of, of 85. And I remember MG probably closer to October pulling me aside one day and he said, you know, they're going to fire me and they're going to make you morning guys. Get out. Yep. And I said, 
police. <laughs> I am I am just <laughs> off the boat. I've been working here for three right. months. I am not going to be doing any yeah. morning show here. And what started to happen was MG would get stuck in traffic. He would sleep in. All of a sudden, I'm working two to six in the morning and then staying on the air until nine o'clock when, oh. you know, Mike Saccolaridis, the midday host, sure. would come in because MG never showed up. And so now I'm looking across the glass and there's Loman and Barkley. I'm on the air against Robert W. Morgan, uh, Charlie Tuna, obviously the height of Rick D's sure. superstardom in, in Los Angeles radio. And I am this little punk kid, basically from Boise, Idaho, with, you know, very little radio experience in, in the major market realm doing Could this. You feel that pressure or were you just oh, too kind of terrified? I would be terrified too. every day, terrified, hating everything that I did. I, I'll never survive. There was just such instinctual fear that I, I, I mean, but apparently on the outside, it was, I was doing it. You in were some showing way. up. I mean, like you were talking earlier about uh, wanting to be Ringo and you could tell early on that there were kids that were just a lot better than a lot me. better, but you obviously came into your moment like a top tier professional. I, athlete. I, I would tell you, I don't know. I don't know how that happened, except that then Johnny K starting, they finally fired MG Kelly in November. And then they asked me to just fill in for mornings until they found a new morning show. And I said, that's great. So during that time, I, I would have a new news person, uh, mostly women, that would come in, it seemed like, every week. And then all of a sudden, there was this girl I'd never seen before in my life, this woman who had come from uh, K-Ace and had just worked a little bit uh, with then-programmer Bob Hamilton at, at K-Earth 101, and that was Kim Amidon. And then uh, all of a sudden, Johnny said, listen, um, I'm going to have Kim do news for you for two weeks. And so Kim and I are doing news, but we keep talking because she doesn't, she has somebody in the news department's writing her news. So she's in between songs. So we just start talking. And back and forth. Meanwhile, though, you think this is just temporary. That, Absolutely. Okay. They're going to have somebody after January 1, there's going to be a whole new thing coming. And then at the end of December, I got approached by Liz Kiley, who is the music director and Johnny's right-hand person at that radio station. She said, Johnny wants you to apply for the morning show. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and, I, and I said, because... They sign contracts that are good every 90 days they're up. So you, they'll, they'll give you a year contract, but it's every 90 days. I said, I can sit back here, try my acting thing, do the voiceover thing, and just be the, the utility guy just coming in here. And I was making more money than I'd ever made before in my life. I was, you know, making- Because you're still working at CBS at this time? Uh, well, I'm, well? I'm, doing, I'm doing voice work. It's, it's just, you know, I'm getting paid for the sessions, but I'm there. Right. But I'm, I am now starting to get callbacks on commercials. I, I, I booked a divorce court. I was, I was getting so you're work. out there doing auditions. You're basically becoming a working actor I was, VO I talent. was early in the gig economy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Again, ahead of your time. And then I was told, you don't say no to Johnny, apply for the job. Now I go, there's an old, this is this Tony Barr Film Actors Workshop. This was like what I did at KISS Radio Broadcasting Workshop, except that this was where you were, you were taught 
acting for television. And my instructor there was a gentleman named uh, David Pamer. And David Pamer was a character actor who, oh, yeah, I've seen you. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he was with, he had a small part with John Travolta in Staying Alive, right? Not even Saturday Night Fever, right? It, it was Staying Alive. alive. He's, <laughs> he was in the second movie, right? But then he started getting uh, more and more parts. And I really liked it because you learned the camera, you learned acting, and you worked with the students. And David seemed to take a, a liking to me to the point where he would ask me to stay after the acting workshops and because he was going on an audition the next morning and if I would run the lines with him. He liked bouncing off of me. And I, I, I sucked. I mean, I, I, I had no, I mean, I don't think I had any acting job. But anyway, David Pamer went on to uh, receive an Academy Award nomination for playing Billy Crystal's brother in Mr. Saturday Night. Right? No kidding. And David Pamer is, if you look up his uh, internet movie database credits. So I go to him. Johnny finally comes to me and says, uh, I want you to do mornings. And I'm going to offer you a contract to do mornings. And I didn't want to do it. I went and talked to David Pamer. And David said, wait a minute. And this was in 1985. They're going to offer you $75,000 to do mornings in Los Angeles. <laughs> or you could stay a part-timer and you could hope that your, 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 your acting career works out, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, David Pamer, uh, without, you said, take the job. <laughs> and so that's why I signed that, that would, first contract. Would you say, and uh, let's go back to your, uh, your uh, mom and your stepfather being highly successful. They, they were welcome back Cotter. Am I correct in that, saying that? Um, they produced, well, my mom, my mom, uh, they met uh, on Dopey and Goofy Drive on the uh, Walt Disney Studio lots, working right. for the wonderful world of Disney. Okay. Then mom went her, kind of her separate way because Rod was a staff writer. My mom was always the freelancer. So she went on and did uh, Emergencies, Adam, One Adam 12. Sure, sure. Uh, she did uh, That Girl. She did, but her first staff job where she stayed for a long period of time was the Waltons. The Waltons. So, okay. so and then my mom and my stepdad formed a partnership with Grant Tinker uh, at Mary Tyler Moore uh, Studios, and they got a development deal after the Waltons had ended to develop uh, family uh, shows. And they paid them, I mean, uh, it was Grant Tinker sure. opened up the checkbook to have these two create, you know, family shows for It was uh, like Mary the go Tyler golden Moore. age of television, and, network television. And within a month, Grant Tinker was hired to run NBC. Oh, man. That was the 80s, and they shut down MTM Studios. And they had a contract. They gave my parents oodles of money to go away. <laughs> and then they immediately went with Earl Hamner. Oh, no, no. They went both back to another three seasons or two seasons of The Waltons. And then Earl Hamner, the creator of The Waltons, after Dallas and those nighttime soaps got very popular, right. he created one based in um, Napa Valley called Falcon Crest. Sure. And so they staffed that entire uh, nine-year run of uh, Falcon Crest. So back around, yes. thank you for the history. That's that is why, because you're the only person I've ever heard in my life that really had to be told to take mornings in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, so would it be safe I, to say that your mom and your stepfather were were, uh, I, were encouraging to go down the TV path? You know what? Here's what I would say, because this is kind of where I thought you were going with that, and I apologize. I 
have a family history of, uh, <laughs> of self-doubt. My grandfather was a phenomenal artist. He went up into his attic and pulled all his paintings down and burned them. Just hated them. I mean, it's taken me 30 years to try to go out into the secondary market to find his stuff. My mom never felt like she was a great writer. She's a fantastic writer. I always felt like I was, I mean, I I was never one to go honk my own horn, if that makes sense. So you, if you were filling in, it was one thing because it was like, well, I'm filling in, I'm helping out. I can do this. All of a sudden when it's mine, the pressure. Holy crap. You mean I have to, what? Yeah. It was, it was insane. I, and I could understand that pressure. I mean, that is extreme pressure. Not only is it mornings in Los Angeles, it is mornings when radio is close to billing the most amount of money it's ever billed. Absolutely. I remember I interviewed Johnny right here uh, when we first started this a couple of years ago, but at that moment in time, they were spending $4 million a year on just marketing the radio station. And he spent probably a million dollars on Kim and I alone. Now, if you would have wrapped my head around that in 1986, 87, when that was all going on, I would have passed out. I don't know. I mean, you would have. Sure. It, it, it was insane. Yet what I had was the, the life anchor of Kim Amidon. You know, she was a joy to be around. And we were just, I mean, like two peas in a pod. We were as close as close. We socialized. We did everything together. And and we really did become successful. So I think that just the comfort being with her allowed me to flourish in the environment. When Johnny hires you to do mornings and David says, you've got to take this kick, dumbass, take yeah, it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> was Kim, Johnny had the foresight to put the two of you together based on the chemistry uh, when she was doing the news? You know, when it was announced that, and I've still got the uh, old R&R magazine, Kim's not mentioned. It's Mark Wallengren is hired for mornings. So Kim wasn't part of that. She was doing news, and I think she was going to do news. But uh, as I had mentioned that, you know, we started because uh, KFI News Department was writing the news for her to read twice an hour, that we started talking in between. I see. And then Johnny just, I guess he was getting compliments that he wasn't sharing with us. Right. But he did encourage us, oh, you guys should do that more, do that more, do that more, do that more. So she would do the news, and then you guys would start to interact more after the break. Right, in in between the songs. So February 3rd, of 86, it was determined that we are going to call it the Mark and Kim show. And you guys, we just want you to be, uh, you know, somebody at the breakfast table or sitting on the couch and just having a conversation and, and drawing people in. And that becomes the first basically co-branded male, female show in the country. Cause and at if, that point, it's just really named after the male host. Well, and if you think about it, you, you look at, at the incredible success that uh, Rick Dees had at the time, right? Who was his news person? Yeah. Rugburn, Liz Fulton. That's right. That's right? right. And what does Rugburn on a woman mean? Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was everything. Yes, it was the Rick D show. And then Liz was there. There was a woman. But what was the woman's role? Kind of in a demeaning. Absolutely. Demeaning, yeah. You know, and that was the same with so many women on the radio up until it was just Mark and it was just Kim. That and- said a lot. And I agree 100% with what you're saying but also a lot to the fact that you were open to that. Because I think a lot of people that are young 
And I actually think you already answered this question, but I'll go back around to it. I think it was your self-doubt. And it's amazing it turned out the way it was. But I would say nine out of 10 guys that were in your position would be like, fuck that. It's going to be the Mark Wallengren show. And their ego would get in the way of it. But probably because you doubted yourself and you were actually questioning taking on this gig, you were open to such a thing. Well, and there was also this part of it, Chachi. I was just grateful to have the job. (laughs) What do you want to, you want to call it what? Shit caboodles? Fine. Yes, that's good. I'll take that. Sure. Does that check cash every two weeks? Perfect. No, my God, those are the days where we got paid every Friday. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I had money every weekend. Many of them lost, but no. But so, yeah, no, there, there's there's something uh, to be said for that. How long did it take? You guys, obviously, chemistry-wise, you gel, and you gelled early, early on. How long did it take for that to turn into rating success? Uh, immediately, immediately. Our first, well, first of all, when they let go of M.G. Kelly, I already increased the ratings on that book by myself, basically, with, you know, Kim and some of the other news people that were uh, uh, doing it with me uh, at the time. Um, but once Kim and I started, uh, we went from, oh, being uh, f- somewhere in the top 15 women, 25, 54, to being in the top five. And within a year... Uh, we were always top three women because we were always targeted for uh, women 2554. And then as a station, we were number one. But, uh, you know, mornings because of the utter dominance of, of Rick D's, you know, we, we weren't able to pop that until the early 90s. But still, when you look at this market and the incredible yeah. talent that you were on against, I mean, at yeah. one point, Scott Shannon was here. Yeah. You had, obviously, Dees. You had Big Boy. You had Mark and Brian. You had Kevin and Bean. We were before all those guys. Kim and I were before everybody you just mentioned there. I mean, I mean, outside of the Loman of Barclays, right? Loman of Barclays. And, 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 and yeah. Uh, and, and Charlie Tuna and, yeah. and K-Earth 101. You had all those legendary talents over there. The real Don Steele was still working at 10 Q AM or whatever. So those, those people were definitely uh, around. And I think that there was just such joy with Kim and I, with each other and doing what we're doing and having some background fun it was almost like no one was there in the room with us, despite what we were doing. And it was that relationship that uh, really made it work, you know? And that chemistry for 30 years to hold yeah. the position that you guys did. Well, and, and, and for Kim and I, it was 22 together. 22. Uh, yeah. And then uh, during that dreadful same time that, that when we were working together in an 09, when y- you got let go, Kim, uh, you know, was that same, uh, hers was before, but it was all right. that financial crisis, all the economy uh, stuff going on. The and, downturn. Yeah. And- you know, there were, there were other things uh, going on. And the station had changed at the point when you first were hired, was it Cox that owned the radio station? Yep. So it was Cox. Mm-hmm. And then it went to, was it AMFM for a while? Um, oh, <laughs> I love how you say a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, for uh, I think almost 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> that consolidation, it went so quickly. It was like. In one weekend, <laughs> we had three owners. One weekend. In a weekend, it was Cox. 
Then it was, uh, what did you say? It was uh, uh, AM, FM, I believe. Oh, a, no, no. It was Infinity. 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 Then AM, yeah. FM, and then Clear Channel. <laughs> yeah, J Court, Clear Channel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And even in, in uh, you know, with, in, with my severance checks, they're still <laughs> listed as AM, FM. Are you serious? I swear to you. Oh, you know, my God. All, all, all of that stuff. I, I signed a, a three year deal. Uh, that they uh, uh, so graciously uh, decided to end six months into the thing. Oh, these people! Oh, I could tell you stories about these people. We're gonna we're gonna get into these people. Oh, I want I want to talk though more about the heyday of I'll just text Coast. my lawyer. Go ahead. <laughs> and the promotions. Uh, you could not when you go and you watch where the streets have no name. There is a coast. I don't know if you know this or not. You probably absolutely. do absolutely. But literally, a bus drives by with the coast billboard. No, on no, it. no. With my, my picture, your picture. <laughs> <laughs> that's remember that that uh, that's so, a great thing. I mean, I will say to really know that it's me, you've got to freeze <laughs> just at the right but spot. But I mean, how cool is that? It was great, and that obviously that whole video shoot made national news, and it was such yeah, a, such yeah. such a big. Deal. And I'll, I'll tell you, you, you know, it, as when the bus boards, when yes. you, you see that in pop culture, it, uh, Lethal Weapon. You know, those coast yes, built. I mean, yes. if you look at any movie between 1983 and about 88, um, there's a good chance if they're on a public street in Los Angeles, there will be a bus that passes by. It'll have a big red with white lettering. That's a coast logo. And that just shows you the power of branding and marketing. And I think that's a lot of how the industry's lost its way and that we've we've gotten away from the bigger I need you Hollywood. to yell louder and tell me how great you are. I'm sorry. I can't spend but money on that. You guys also, I mean, put on these promotions where you took over Disneyland. I think it still yeah. goes on today, yeah. but I mean, it was just unheard of to take over a park and literally just for Coast listeners. And I would like to say that that obviously goes to uh, the great love we all had for classic Disney. Sure. Um, Johnny K is a huge, huge uh, Disney fan. I can say that, uh, and I'm going to just trump them all because uh, I'm the, I, my lineage in the Walt Disney Company goes back generations. And I am the reason that, <laughs> just go with me on this <laughs> okay, one, Judge. Okay. okay? You just, just follow me and you just go with me on this one. Um, when it comes to Kim and I, when you look at the raciness that was on the radio, and Disney was very, very, you know, they wanted to kind of stay away from that. They had a good relationship with Rick Dees and Kiss FM and so on and so forth. But for the most part, Coast was just a perfect fit. Sure. We were the family friendly. We weren't going to be talking about somebody, you know, fapping in a car on the side of the freeway like Mark and Brian used to do all the time. Um, I mean, I'd literally be with my kids. I'd have to turn the radio. I would turn the radio off. It's just uh, uh, crazy. But uh, so we had that going for us. But even earlier than that, and, and I remember one trip when uh, we went to Disney World and I got to meet Roy Disney. Oh, man. Uh, uh, you know, this is his son. This is Walt's right. nephew yep. who stayed and really helped revive, got Michael yeah. Eisner in as CEO. And so my grandfather's brother was an original animator hired by Walt Disney himself to develop a new character that he wasn't pleased with how it was looking. And he came in and uh, helped out with lead character animation with um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, went on to Pinocchio, uh, Peter Pan, Bambi. But he was the big cheese on uh, Tres Caballeros. The, uh, was it the, the three? And that was Donald Duck. 
he, my uncle is, great uncle is responsible for the modern look of Donald Duck and his team. So Roy remembers those guys and he was my mom's boss when my mom was a staff writer for a brief period of time on the wonderful world of Disney. And Roy would tell me a story about my family that he would go fly fishing up with his buds up in Montana and he would pull up to this homestead where I was born, this resort. And he, before he got there, he and his buddy would jump out of the car, open the back of it and take a couple of swigs of whiskey in the the back because they were all Mormons (laughs) and he didn't want us, right? So, so all of a sudden, you know, we did have this really great relationship with Disney and all of a sudden we went from just not only having great relationship, but all of these parties started taking place and we would shut the park down and Disney wasn't doing it for very many people then. No, it was the, I still argue it is the hottest ticket. It surpasses Wango Tango and all the jingle balls. I mean, there is no hotter ticket than tickets to that night when the park is literally just for the coast listeners. Yeah, I'm going to pull Darren into this for a second because he's got, uh, Darren who does an amazing job of uh, engineering this. Thank you, Darren. But he was the production director at Radio Disney at the time when you're doing all this across the street. I mean, and literally. Darren, what years were you there? Ninety. Eight to twenty twenty two. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. for a long time, you, yeah. yeah. Did it piss you guys off a little bit that radio Dis that coast that radio owned- Disney couldn't get their own party? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't, I got to say, we didn't even. It never even came up. Really? Yeah. We really? Because you guys are so focused on, on the younger demo and the kids. Yeah, and- that was our thing. So they're, you know, the kids aren't getting buying tickets and they're not buying anything in there at that time. So. I think it was like, nope, we're just going to focus on demo. playing Ariana Grande and Selena Gomez and Backstreet Boys and stuff like yeah. that. Well, yeah. I will say that uh, one thing Radio Disney might not have been willing to do that Coast was, was pay to actually have the parties. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, how does Disney write itself his yeah. own check? Right. Now, I, I, I'll tell you this. Uh, those nights, from what I remember, were about $250,000 a night. And if you wanted a parade, that was going to be more. There was a whole menu list that you could pick Jeez. from. But what we would do was we'd get them down to about $150,000 to rent the park because we would spend three weeks every year nonstop talking about the party. Right. But we did build it up, and you're right. It was a, just a huge event. Those started off as anniversary parties for um, the radio station in November. You know, then we would try to time them around when uh, we decided to switch to all Christmas music, which is a really interesting story too, how that started because uh, it's now just, you can't go to a you know, market in the country. That doesn't happen. And let's, let's dig into that Christmas music. One more thing on the Disney and then we're going to dig into Christmas. But I still, to this day, I haven't worked there for 12 years now. And still every year around that party, someone calls me. He's like, Hey, do you think you can get me tickets? Oh God, that's so funny. (laughs) And you know what? And, and, and this is the first year that uh, I've got absolutely uh, nothing, no tickets, nothing to do with it. Christmas music. I, I want to hear your side of this story because uh, I love, you know, I'm, I'm close with Roy and I talk to Roy and he's got his side and Johnny's side. And so- Roy Laughlin, who basically was the market president. Uh, I will say that uh, Roy, well, I know this for a fact because, uh, and, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm only speaking the truth. I remember being so upset every Christmas 
of why we don't play more than one or maybe two Christmas songs an hour. Oh, the audience. This is Johnny K. I love you, Johnny. Johnny would, and I don't know whether he had somebody telling him. I don't know. But it was like, no, we would never play. Nobody wants to hear nonstop Christmas music, right? And uh, I remember right after 9-11, there really began a discussion about the fact that we really need something to make us feel good. We've got to bring something to make us uh, feel good. Now, it is a fact that in Phoenix, Arizona, there was a station that did one Christmas. The Christmas before had done nonstop Christmas. And uh, there was ratings results, and they were positive. That's what Roy Laughlin brought in in Glendale, where our studios were uh, with KBIG, our arch enemies <laughs> for years. And all of a sudden, now we're owned by the same company and have to be nice to each other. Um but I remember Roy really saying, I think this is something we should really do. I remember Stella uh, Prado sure. being uh, very much for it. And I remember Johnny being Johnny's nervous self about it. You know, he loved the Christmas music, but he was concerned that it would not be successful with the ratings. And so we did go ahead and execute it. And somebody had a, a run, and this is still paper diary. This is not sure. PPM. That's, uh, uh, you know, the digital devices that are uh, worn by people versus memory recall on a paper diary. And the ratings, I think Roy got a hold of them, and it was just explosive. Right. And so we knew we were onto something. And after those ratings came out that year, it was going to be every year. But we always waited until the Disney party in December, which was at Disneyland, right? So then uh, after Johnny left and we had a, a few more shifts of, of, of program directors, uh, the last one that came in uh, was uh, a guy named John Peake, who's now the market manager at iHeart. Nice guy, but we started flipping as they opened California Adventure. Disney wanted us to do the party at California Adventure, and we would go back. One year, California Adventure, one year, Disneyland. Well, it kept going on every year as California Adventure. Then John Peake said, we're going to wait for the Disney party into December. Well, what happens at Thanksgiving is Disneyland, uh, prior to Thanksgiving holiday, Disneyland would close at 6 or 8 o'clock at night. So we could get Disneyland at night. Now you push the party past Thanksgiving. Disneyland's now open till midnight, right? But they still close. So we have for 10 or 11 years, it's been every year at Disney California Adventure versus oh, Disneyland, which is heartbreaking for so many people because sure. Disneyland is where you want to be That's for Christmas. nostalgia and absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, okay. Yeah. But That's no doubt there. that the Christmas music was a gigantic success. And, and, and has been and will continue yeah. to be, and it won't matter who's there if, if that station is playing it. And I'm shocked, given that other markets around the country will have three or four stations flipped to Christmas, yeah. that here in Los Angeles, you've got the Levine family doing it at Country yeah. Christmas, and yeah. us here, and uh, with Coast having a much stronger signal and wider reach, 
the Levines have got no chance over there. Sure. Which, uh, all respect, this is one of the last people in the country, a family actually owns a major market it's radio true. station. Yeah. And to fully disclose a client of ours, they've been. Oh, a, is that they, right? Yeah, is that have, right? Yeah. Have, no, but I mean, that's, yeah. that's a remarkable really family. Is, yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. His son, Michael, uh, runs Yeah, it Michael. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk about the star uh, that you got on the Walk of Fame. Wow. Would you say that's the pinnacle of your career? Uh, absolutely, and it's it's the pinnacle of the relationship uh, that Kim and I had with um, with the Walt Disney Company. I can gratefully say that one of our biggest fans ever of our show was Dick Cook, who was the chairman of the uh, Walt Disney Picture Studios. He loved us. And he loved everything that we did. And so when we found out that we were getting a star, of course, the next question is, well, where's the star going to be? And um, Dick walked it over to Michael Eisner, who immediately signed off because they control part of their agreement with the city of Hollywood was they control all the star placement in front of the El Capitan Theater, the Jimmy Kimmel studio, uh, and then the little ice cream Place I didn't right know that. Yeah, they control everything. So they said, absolutely, let's put Mark and Kim in front of the uh, uh, the El Capitan Theater. So it's insane that, you know, we're right in between Ray Bolger, the Scarecrow on Wizard of Oz, Steve McQueen, Penelope Cruz, and uh, I think I think Donald Duck, which is great for, yeah, you know, my, so cool. uh, my great, uncle. my late uncle. That is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Kim leaves around the era that I, the, the downsizing and, and everything else. Yeah, because you were there. I mean, what what year did you start at I, uh, Clear Channel? I started, I moved up here to produce for Rick Dees in 2000. At oh, Kiss, is it 2000? And then I started working with you and, uh, and Johnny at 2001. And yeah. I remember being with you on 9-11. Yeah. I remember actually, I think it was Rodrigo, someone called the house to yeah. tell me that it was, that the plane hit the, and, the tower. And it was me walking in the studio and Charlie Tuna running in and saying there was a small plane that just hit the World Trade Center and the TV was on. And then Kim and I go on the air and instead of hitting a song, we start talking about, you know, what has happened in New York. Um, This is not part of the flight path, you know, explaining all that and then watching the second plane slam into the other tower. And I remember... You know, you could clearly see that this was a jet airliner, and I uttered um, uh, immediately that this is a this is a terrorist attack. I was in the car at that point, listening to you make that call, basically, made, yeah. listening to you announce that on yeah. my way on the one thirty four yeah. coming to Glendale. Yeah, because uh, so Charlie called you uh, at like it would have so been girl- five fifty. My girlfriend picked up the phone, so I don't remember if it was Rodrigo or Charlie. Someone called, woke me up. And then I, I think I woke up Johnny or someone else had called Johnny and yeah. we both raced in. Yeah. Mark, tell me a little bit about uh, what you were going through just emotionally when Kim left. Well, Kim uh, left about the time that the whole financial collapse happened in 2008 that was so huge. And, and uh, I heart, uh, obviously, in fiscal you know, concerns, cut back and, and, uh, and Kim was uh, one of that. It was an absolute shock. Uh, and it was it was really hard. Stella Prado, uh, the program director at the time, and I probably answered at least 
10,000 phone calls and emails. And, um, you know, I had them all saved on, uh, on a hard drive that uh, I don't know what the heck I've done with it. But we worked so hard, and it was such a shock to all of us. It was, and I went on the air and, you know, talked about it. I mean, it, it was the most challenging thing I've ever done in radio. And I feel like I've been through a lot of challenges. But to have a 22-year partnership end overnight. And actually, Kim had, um, you know, I had called her up and I said, you know, this just, it, this just can't stand. I mean, you know, do, sh, you know, I'll quit. Let's go somewhere else. And she said, um, you know, I, I really want to take some time off. And so I, I had to think about that because I had four young kids, one about to go into college. Sure. And so I was looking at all these financial expenses that I had to go through. And so I had to, you know, kind of, it, it wasn't anything that I ever wanted to do, but something that I kind of felt like, well, you know, I, I, I really didn't feel like I had much choice. It would have been hard for me to sit out for a year and, uh, and not work. But well, it was an incredibly trying time. And not only just for me emotionally, but honestly, for the entire radio station. I mean, imagine, uh, and it happens all the time. I don't know if people are, you know, understand exactly when you had that kind of uh, a transition, um, that it's hard on salespeople and it, it's hard on everybody. And the managers don't tell you, right? right. So it's a shock to everybody. And and uh, so really hats off to uh, how hard they worked. And we had recovered, in fact, I would say by within an, a year, um, me being alone, I, I did have get those ratings back and, and uh, increase them uh, from when I had Kim. And here you are obviously working together for 22 years in the same room, doing a show together. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's we, we talk about this, but it's like a marriage in a lot uh, of ways. She was absolutely my second wife, and I still feel uh, like it was a sister. And I understandably, especially after, you know, I no longer am at the radio station, really, truly better understand Kim's feelings and how she must have looked at me and said, you know, why are you, you know, staying on or, but she was also very, when I would talk to her, it was, you know, we had a lot of fun. We really had a great time. And I just have never, even to this day, I would start something up with that woman again immediately, you know, if, if I could, if I could just draw her back in. <laughs> so you have another a morning show host for, for a bit. Yeah. I was alone for a year and then, uh, there were advertisers and it's interesting to see the influence of advertisers, which obviously they're giving you the money. This is how the radio station makes uh, their living and the rest of us, uh, who really felt the lack of presence of a, a woman, uh, in the morning show. And what's interesting is my whole career had been devoted to a female audience. So I always was able to, I felt to relate to a woman. I didn't feel like I, you know, talked down to, you know, any women or anything like that, but there was that pressure. And so all of a sudden it had to be that we needed to find somebody else. Right. And is that hard after being in a relationship for someone with someone for 22 years now to be in another relationship and, and start in a lot of ways, I guess, because you have your own ways. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like starting a relationship later yeah. on in life. Well, number one question from anybody was, well, hey, if you're getting another female partner, bring Kim back. Oh. Right. And so we there was a huge campaign on behalf of myself and Stella to convince management about doing that. And 
I heard from more than one manager who said, you can't ever go back. It will never fully be accepted, nor would it ever be the same. And which is interesting to me because, you know, not I'm going to compare myself to the Beatles, but yeah, it would have been really bad if the Beatles yeah. got back together again. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, in this day and age, and obviously, I know that was, you know, I guess probably 10 years ago now, but you look at how uh, popular uh, reboots are and how many different movies yeah, we've brought it's back. True. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, you know, again, I think it's either A, an excuse uh, or maybe, in all honesty, it's a financial decision. Oh, we know what we were paying Mark and Kim before they were together. What is that going to cost us if we try that again? Sure, sure. <laughs> so you move into afternoons. Oh, yeah, that came later, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I did work with Kristen Cruz for five years and then uh, in the morning show. Then she was let go. Uh, which is uh, oh, was that for five years? Uh, it was yeah, it was almost it was almost six. Oh wow, I didn't yeah. realize it was such a long time. Uh, and it and and that was a that had its real challenges. But when Kristen was let go, then I worked mornings alone for another year. Okay, and actually increased the ratings much higher than they were with uh, Mark and Kristen. But I think that from my knowledge. I had been asked years earlier, around the time Kim left, uh, Greg Ashlock asked me, said, hey, what do you think about working with Ellen Kay in the morning? And I looked at him and I said, well, why would Ellen Kay leave the Ryan Seacrest show? Well, I realized looking back, they were planning her leaving Ryan Seacrest show five years before I got let go, right? So um, anyway, I was let go and, and moved to afternoon, which we've seen that happen time and time again in the industry as, as uh, the, you know, the last couple of years just shows, you know, you'll read the title. It's called, oh, the morning show decides they're going to be the afternoon people. Right. No, they, they didn't decide that. Management did. No morning guy would ever on his own say, I'm tired of getting up. Put me on in the afternoon, please. Um, but that being said, I knew that uh, leaving the show, I, I knew I still had something to offer the radio station. And I also, again, had now three other kids in college. So there was a financial thing about, I need to sure. continue to work. So I found myself in a position that I couldn't necessarily turn down and move to the afternoons, but ended up really creating uh, a great audience and really enjoyed working uh, afternoons, uh, you know. Outside of a few promises that the radio station and programmers would tell me, oh, we've got this book-ended morning show. It's like, we want you to have a morning show in the afternoon. That didn't materialize. I thought those were kind of empty promises, but I really, really enjoyed the afternoon show. I always felt that you sounded great. I mean, you sound great in the mornings, but I felt like you sounded fantastic in the afternoon. Yeah, and you know, honestly, um, as we've learned from moving to People Meter in uh, radio, is the afternoons have more audience than the morning yeah. shows. So really, you do want the money in the afternoon to a certain degree. Did so. you feel the same pressure in the afternoon as you did in the morning? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was harder in many ways than the morning because there were fewer opportunities, I felt, to be impactful. So uh, that created, I felt, uh, a lot more prep. And I had a tremendous amount of respect for the uh, old school, real Don Steele afternoon show guys who could deliver incredible content in a, in a quick period of time. Right. Let me tell you, that doesn't just come off the top of your head. You got to sit down and put that 
you know, to paper sure. and then, you know, put it on the air. Yeah. I think so many people feel like, oh, what a great job. You just walk into a studio there you and go. crack the yeah. bike. Let me realize. tell you, you'll be successful for about a month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so talking about marriages, you, uh, you love long-term relationships. I'm uh, impressed. 22 years with Kim and you've been married to your wife, Barbara, for 34. What's wrong with me? There, you know, <laughs> why, do I, why do I like this? Hey, coming from a guy who's been divorced twice, yeah. I am in, in, incredibly impressed. And, you know, uh, you're it, a smart it, man. It's funny too, because I look at, at the career in, in radio. You know, I really, I was an actor. I, you know, was semi doing voiceovers, but more really interested in, in the, in the performing sense and in, in getting up in front of a camera. And, um, when I started radio and I really ended up kind of just getting into it, it's just, I never had any aspiration to do anything else. I just want to do this. And, and she being coast was pretty good to me. We would have our differences, but she was good to me. She was really good to me. I got 35 years out of that woman. Okay. And, and that's good. Now she dumped me in the end, (laughs) but that doesn't mean that I didn't have 34 years and, you know, nine months of real joy. And I can say that about my wife too. You know, it's, and I do, I really like consistency and I like dependability and I, I, you know, that's just kind of who, who I am. And that has transitioned in not working on a daily basis right now because I'm the dependable dad that will come over. Just yesterday, my daughter is in an apartment and um, she doesn't, it's an old 1928 building with, you know, a hundred years worth of paint on the walls. I said, let's just take all the paint off. So I, with a heat gun, am stripping walls (laughs) and repainting, helping my daughter. I'm her handyman and I'm always there. The minute she calls, I get up and I go over and... So, no, I think that's fantastic. I know yeah. you've always been really close with your family. And, oh yeah, uh, you're just uh, such a generous person. I'm with your, very blessed with your uh, with your time and in talking about generosity. I know you were uh, very close with your brother Ernie, and he was actually the first person I'd ever met uh, that had unfortunately and tragically passed of ALS. Uh, yeah, ALS, which was you know we knew about it from uh, Lou Gehrig disease and and that kind of thing, but um, you know to have it drop right in in your family was a shock and ernie was a very successful television writer producer and was writing for um uh oh gosh billy ray cyrus was in a syndicated show called doc and um ernie was one of the executive producers you know he would take these jobs might last a year or two and you know you always hope for that the big show that goes 10 and he definitely worked on a couple of those and ended up writing just a, a beautiful beautiful episode uh, starring Michael W. Smith, the uh, Christian singer who okay. got ALS. And, you know, I think that script should have been nominated for an Emmy because Ernie, having the experience, bringing it, it right into it. Well, it's he, almost, wrote, he wrote a script. He Sorry, wrote that I, episode. No kidding. He, he, he was diagnosed with ALS, was working for that show, and then brought ALS into the into the show, and uh, he the Muscular Dystrophy Association gave him this very prestigious uh, award. But I mean, it was just a beautiful, beautiful show. And I sometimes think that God just kind of said, "I need, I need you to give people a lesson. I need the, we need to get the word out more about this." Because um, you know, if I just felt like Ernie was here only his 50 years and then left and and that was just it 
it would be hard to live with that. But there were so many things that he did that made him a great man. And, and I love and miss him, you know, because of that. Absolutely. And the fact that we're still talking about him and yeah. what an impact yeah. that he had. And yeah. you've taken a big part in, he had four daughters? How, you uh, had four, how he's many kids? five kids. Five kids. Uh, three, uh, uh, three boys, two girls. And um, I just was speaking of, you know, Mr. Dependable, I was over, my mother had passed away about a year ago. And so we had gone to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where uh, she had retired and we split up possessions and Ernie's oldest son wanted uh, a mirror that was hanging in their house. And so I just, this last weekend took over that mirror that my mom has had for 50 years and now hanging over there. Uh, you know, fireplace. And so, yeah, Ernie's got all of these great kids and he's actually, uh, you know, working in the business now too. That's fantastic. And what is he doing? He's got a younger son. Oh, it's terrible that you asked me that. I know he was working for Technicolor. You know, he's doing you know, uh, it's something in the, in the, the production. Business. That's fantastic. Yeah, I only know because he's got, what I know Seth for is his two little kids. And that's all I care about, right? <laughs> <laughs> and tell me a little bit about your kids. Have uh, any of them decided, I know um, one, your son's a musician. Have any of the others kind of decided to follow so down the artistic route? That's a really, that's a really good question. My son, Dylan, who uh, is working right now at Uncle Polly's in Studio City, it is the greatest uh, sub sandwiches you will ever have because he's always, you know, keeping his schedule open. So if he picks up a PA job, he can do that. That's great. Uh, he got his uh, degree in um, uh, creative writing. He wants to be a screenwriter. Okay. And so he's moving him self that way into the business, which was the same as my parents sure. and uh, my brother. My oldest daughter is a home organizer. She has uh, developed a business, Clear Space by Erica, on Instagram. You have no idea how uh, how that appeases my OCD. Oh, I'd boy. Like, boy. And it's, it's like I a, think that every single, I, I realize maybe I've got a little of that too, Chachi, and which means I've probably genetically passed it on. <laughs> and so I have a daughter with a, you know organization business. Um, a younger daughter who uh, was working for a company called Melinda Maria Jewelry, uh, she's uh, into kind of marketing uh, with an expertise in online sales, which unknowing to me, I mean, I know how much people are buying stuff online, but holy crap. I mean, that's a, that's a sought after and well-paying job. That's I mean, it's, so I'm very happy for her. And then Ryan, who you mentioned earlier being the musician, he was uh, signed uh, to Universal uh, Republic Music in uh, when he was uh, 16. I had to sign the contract. They released one album. And it was very successful in commercials, boom, but, you know, didn't really fly that way. Uh, management and so on and so forth kind of fell apart. And then he tried something on his own. But what it's transitioned into is he's now been doing sound design, including uh, for a local Nike agency here in Los Angeles. So sometimes when you go on the Nike page and they've got this little video, creative video with music and stuff, that might be my son's. He's working for um, some uh, uh, sneaker companies. And uh, so he's been doing sound design. He's home right now working on a project he's got to have busted out by Thursday. And he's also one of the smartest guys I know. I, I'm learning stuff from him now. I have such a great story. I remember you inviting us to go see him at the Whiskey. Oh, that's right. As Years back, I'm with my first wife, uh, Carrie, and uh, it is just a great time. Phenomenal show. We have a few drinks there. We then go over to the Rainbow Room, which right, is right next, next door. door. 
and uh, demolish a pizza, drink some more. And then my uh, ex likes tattoos. And so she said, let's go across the street to that. Uh, I think Mark Mahoney, the tattoo right, artist. Let's right. go get tattoos. So I'm like, great idea. So we go rolling across the Notice street. Notice that was after you know, drinks at the whiskey and drinks at the rainbow. Yes, and a, a, an extra large cheese pizza. And so she gets her tattoo, no issues. She's, you know, tough as nails. I get my tattoo and it's on the back here and I start feeling like queasy and I'm not <laughs> feeling good. And it's this kind of a, a tough tattoo parlor with some, you know, some cool, tougher looking Nobody's people. crying, Chachi. No one is crying, exactly. <laughs> and I kid you not, I hurl in oh. the tattoo parlor. I literally threw up the pizza and the drinks in the tattoo parlor. So that is my story around your son's show. Did and you I'll get another tattoo that. after that? No. Because <laughs> <laughs> at least you could test whether it was the pizza and alcohol or whether it was the, the, the pain of getting a tattoo. And truth be told, it was the, my original tattoo. I got my very first tattoo and only tattoo down in San Diego on the air with Jagger and Christy. And I got wow. sick, got sick then. Too. Oh, my dad, did. my dad, who is a uh, physician and at the time was getting into cosmetic procedures, got a hair removal de- device, a laser to remove hair. So I'm like, great, laser my back. So I have him laser my back and he accidentally takes half of my tattoo off while he's lasering my back. So when I went to the, uh, to the tattoo, or I was actually having him, him fix yours. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. That's great. Oh my gosh. So that's the, the story, but what a great show. Yeah, I will yeah. forever and, remember And, it. you know, they were very influenced by uh, the Rolling Stones. And at the time, I think that it's just, you know, rock was kind of, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's kind of came back like the Kelly Clarkson's pop, the pop rockish. But sure. these guys really uh, wanted to rock. Um, but Billy Boy on Poison is their name. And I swear to you, that album, had it been properly pushed and, and marketed, uh, and really, there was a lot of label, and you hear a million of these stories, but it still to this day holds up. It is a great rock and roll album. And I was just on Instagram thinking, oh, I can use a Billy Boy record, and they're not available on, so now I've got to, because I, I still know the guy that owns the, the record label. I think he has the masters. I got to go, why didn't you get this Billy Boy yeah. music? Up? Because it is great. There's one song called Killing the Peace with everything going on in the world right now that would be this perfect protest song that we haven't really seen protest songs in decades. So, you know, I think that's what I'm going to do now that I'm not working that, is I'm just going to be a rock band manager. I, I, I love it. You would be a great <laughs> rock band manager. I could completely see that. You know? Yeah. I know that you uh, were very close, obviously, with your mom and your father, yeah. and I wanted to bring up, uh, I'm very sorry for your, oh, your recent thank loss you. of your father. I you know, know uh, my dad just passed away um, right after the first of the year in January of 23, and um, I was so blessed to have both my parents because they went well into their 90s, and so I, I sometimes feel bad about why don't I feel worse, I mean, I, and I desperately miss them, but... Boy, I mean, compared to so many other people, to be able to have them in my life, and and especially, you know, especially my mom, there was not one thing unturned or unsaid. Any, any, any issues that we may have had, me as a child, her as a mother, or the two of us as, as adults, not a word left unsaid. Settled everything. My dad, uh, I never met another man who enjoyed life more than he did. 
you know, and he would say, yeah, you know, I remember one conversation, you know, Mark, I really was never very ambitious. And I feel that way about myself. I really didn't have any ambition. You have a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. You were working in the number one, you know, generated market. I mean, all these things that I've done and I still feel like, oh, I, I had no ambition. My dad was the same way. He was very successful in, he owned restaurants and was everything he did was very successful. So it was really great to have that time and just close it all up and be able to say goodbye. A lot of times that doesn't happen. From the outside looking in, I would say you had a ton of ambition, but you're incredibly humble. And uh, you also did a great job of balancing it with a very uh, wonderful family that you're close to and a fantastic wife. And I think- Thank you, Chachi. I appreciate that. Takes a lot of of balance. And I I think that, uh, you know, because right now, even after a year, my mom gone, we're still, uh, she is buried in uh, near Park City, Utah. Ground is frozen, right? Very cold. They don't put headstones in until the the ground um, uh, uh, softens a bit. But, you know, we designed the headstone and it made me think about my own. And all I really want mine to say is blessed beyond measure. I mean, you know, good times, bad times, you know, I, I really wouldn't trade anything that I've gone through for anything. It's all been so great. And God willing, I'll, I'll, you know, go into my nineties and have some more things to do and say, and, and, uh, and, and be around. Mark, thank you so much for doing this. What's next? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm remodeling my house. I do have a studio and I've been thinking, you know, about, about some ideas. I, it's really funny. I would, as much as I would love to work, I, it terrifies me to, to think about after, you know, really seriously putting in 12 to 14 hour days for years, the thought of, of spending that much time kind of scares me a little bit. I know I've got it in me, but it's like, you are, you worked incredibly hard and I will absolutely attest, uh, when we worked in the same building together, there's a, a lot of morning talent that may be, you know, out the door at 10 Oh one, but you were always there and, uh, always working and sending emails late into the afternoon. I mean, I think your mind is, uh, is incredibly active and yeah. I think you just have, it probably comes from your family, just a, uh, an incredible work ethic. I, I do have to keep working and I can say that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically down to my, you know, 1989 weight. You look fantastic. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, my face is falling off my skull, but <laughs> other than that, everything's great. Well, Chachi, it's been so great uh, to be here with you, and congratulations on everything uh, uh, with Ben's Town. Uh, thank you. What you, I was telling you, we went out to lunch before this, and you're so brilliant in the sense that you found a void, were able to fill that hole and be extremely successful at it. And one thing that both you and I uh, have learned, my just up and leaving Idaho and just saying, screw it, I got to go home, uh, where I kind of had that choice to, to stay or do, you kind of didn't, but the resiliency and the creativity and what you have created here is astounding. It's astounding. And I'm so proud to call you a friend and, and the fact that, that, that I know. Well, thank you, man. Yeah. You've been a huge inspiration in your friendship and support over the years. Means well, I, I look forward to uh, uh, seeing you again very, very soon. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Mark. 
Thanks for listening to Chachi Loves Everybody. If you like the show, we hope you leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends. Please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been a Benstown McVeigh podcast production. Hosted and researched by Dave Chachi Dennis. Executive producer, Darren Silva. Producer and editor, Jake Urbanic. Show coordinator, Estefania Padilla. Marketing and distribution, Suzanne Aksu and Robbie Gessel.